Thank you, Chipper, for that heartfelt prayer. Um, well, I, good morning. I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to get to preach this morning. Uh, we are continuing through our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open that up and follow along. It'll also be uh, available up here on the screen as well, or you can pull out a Bible underneath the chair. We have some pew Bibles available there also. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 6 to get a little bit of the context, and we'll skip down to 16 and 18 so we can see some of the parallels of this passage here. Um, If you are physically able to stand, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? All right, so Matthew 6, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So, what, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And down to verse 16 now. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is your word for us, for our life. pray that you would help us to listen, to hear, to understand, and to trust you this morning. I pray that your spirit would be powerfully at work in our hearts, convicting us and guiding us and leading us near to you. And Lord, I pray that we would leave this room hungry for you. Lord, only you can do that. Work through in spite of my weakness and feebleness. And Lord, may you speak for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, uh, my wife and I had quite a a surprise this week. Um, We woke up around four in the morning to a visitation from our three-and-a-half-year-old. 
uh, and she opened with, I can't get the whipped cream to work. <laughs> to which, you know, as you would appropriately say in that moment, what? <clears throat> I can't get the whipped cream to work. Okay, so I, I say we were awoken, really. Katie was awoken. She recounted all of this to me later. Uh, so Katie gets up with our three-and-a-half-year-old, Naomi, and they walk into the kitchen to discover that Naomi got up and decided to make a pot of coffee. She woke up, and she's just, you know what? I want some coffee. And that went about like you would expect it to go. There was a pot full with, I don't know, two or three cups of coffee grounds and a couple of cups of water in there just warming. Uh, there was water everywhere, coffee grounds everywhere. She even got into the half and half and brown sugar, a nice touch, brown sugar, just <laughs> everywhere. <clears throat> and the only, thing, the only reason we were alerted to this is because she couldn't get the, the whipped cream to come out of the bottle. <clears throat> so after a conversation about this and spending some time uh, cleaning it up, you know, Katie took... Naomi back to bed, and then when I got up in the morning, Katie was, was telling me about uh, what happened to, so that I would know why the kitchen was sticky, and um, to which I responded, so, so you're telling me that coffee's ready. <laughs> and you know, I didn't read the room well on that. Um, <clears throat> I thought that was going to go off better than it did. <clears throat> but you know, when you want something, you go after it, right? Naomi, she, man, she wanted some coffee in the morning, and she got up and she, she went after it. Uh, in this passage this morning, we see a, a little bit of something about that. We see something about that. We, we see this through the lens of hunger and thirst, that when we want something, we go after it. And we, we consider the question here, we're, we're, presented with a question here in this passage on fasting, not only what, do you, what are you hungry for, what do you go hungry for, but also what, are you, what do you hunger for? What drives you? What, are you? what are you seeking after? What do you look to for satisfaction and contentment and joy in life? And what we see here is that God cares about what drives us. He cares about the pursuit of our hearts. And it's because ultimately he wants us to see that there is one pursuit worth chasing after above all others. There's one pursuit. There's one ambition that we were made for. There's one thing worth hungering for more than anything else in this world. And that thing, of course, is him. We were made to hunger for God. And this morning, we get a glimpse from Jesus of what this looks like and what it doesn't. And in fact, Jesus gives us a warning and a promise about hunger. So we'll start with the warning. It'll be a little bit darker, but I promise there's, there's brighter days ahead. So first, the warning, beware the danger of hungering for this world. Uh, a little context and background here. In, the, in this section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is specifically addressing acts of piety. You know, we may call them today spiritual disciplines. 
so we've, we've talked about in the past three weeks, we've talked about almsgiving, giving to the poor. We've spent some time looking at Jesus' instruction on prayer for his disciples. And now we come to this final practice of fasting. And, you know, I would, I would say, unless you follow a diet of intermittent fasting, although that's, that's popular, or maybe was popular, I don't know, uh, or you're preparing for a medical procedure, I would venture to guess that probably this is not a major part of most of our modern lives. In fact, as I was reflecting on this this week, I was like, I, I can't think of more than three or four occasions where I've heard any teaching on fasting in my whole life. It's not, it is generally not something that's on the forefront of our minds. But it is valuable. Jesus, in fact, says here, when you fast. So the expectation is that we would as his disciples. What is fasting? Why is it practiced? Well, fasting is a discipline by which we deprive ourselves of something for some period of time and for the purpose of spiritual growth. So we take something that we use, something that we depend on, something that we enjoy, and we remove it from our lives. It could be for you know part of a day or a whole day or a whole month or longer. And the goal of all of that is spiritual growth. It is to grow in the Lord. And throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are various reasons for this fast, uh, for these kinds of fasts. Sometimes this was done out of repentance for sin, to humble uh, ourselves before God, to confess some offense. Sometimes this was done as an expression of grief, lamenting over some tragedy, or some personal loss, the death of a beloved figure or leader, or upon receiving some devastating news. Sometimes people fasted with a specific petition in mind. You know, they were seeking God's provision for rain for the crops or deliverance from oppressors or for a safe journey. And some of these fasts were corporate and done with the community. Some were personal. Some were commanded, like in the, the Day of Atonement. That was a corporate fast that was commanded in the law. Others were voluntary. So there are all kinds of fasts and occasions for fasting. And following the return from the exile, this practice of fasting evidently increased, including adding more annual feasts uh, with the community to, to demarcate historical days, as well as the, the rhythms of their religious leaders increasing. They began to fast on a regular basis. And by Jesus' time, the religious leaders were known to fast two days a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays. And this rhythm became so well-known in part because of the religious leaders themselves taking measures to make their fasts apparent to everyone. They would not shave. They would not, uh, not wash their face. They would not apply oil to their hair. You know, this was like the first century pomade, I guess. Uh, these were typical hygiene practices, but they didn't do any of those things. Instead, they would put ashes on their face, they put sackcloth over their head, they would go about looking all despondent and looking hungry. And so it was obvious to everyone uh, that they passed that they were fasting, that they were hungry. And this is what Jesus hones in on here to warn about. Jesus does not 
only care about our actions. He cares about our motivations. A life of following Christ, a life that truly belongs to the kingdom of God, does not only involve our actions and our will, it requires the commitment and the allegiance of our heart. That's why he began this section with this warning, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The behavior of these religious leaders revealed that their motivation was not a love for God or a worship of God, but it was the praise of other people. And Jesus warned here that this is terribly, terribly dangerous. This kind of duplicity certainly causes harm to other people. You see it in the way that the religious leaders looked at and treated uh, others, the judgmentalness, the self-righteousness. But it is also catastrophically self-destructive. Think about it. The religious leaders are purportedly doing these acts of sacrificial righteousness in the name of God. But in reality, they're being motivated by the opinion and admiration of people. So in practice, the very act of worship that's supposed to be drawing them closer to God is actually driving them further away. And they're getting applauded for it. What does that do to your heart? What does that do to your soul? This is why Samuel warns in the Old Testament. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's good for us today to hear and heed Jesus' warning. You know, we all have natural God-given desires, right? We have the desire for affirmation. We have the desire for Adoration. We have the desire for security. Among many others, these are part of what it means to be human. But hunger is not merely those desires. Our hunger is the object of those desires. We hunger after the object of our desires. So we have to ask, what are we looking to primarily for our affirmation? What are we looking to primarily for adoration? What are we trusting in primarily for our security? And the answers to those questions could be as varied as, you know, all of us, the number of people in this room and nuanced as that. It can be the applause of a crowd, the approval of a person, a colleague, a boss, a friend, a parent, your children can be acceptance within society. I think this is especially notable in the environment that we live in. How many of us keep our heads down just out of fear that they're going to get taken off because of our convictions and our faith? It can be a romantic partner, it can be a stable job, a paycheck, a retirement account, whatever. Whatever the object, the thing, the ambition, the person, the, the attainment that we have set our desires upon, essentially, primarily, the thing, that, the thing or set of things that we look to for the fulfillment of those desires 
those are the things that we hunger for, that we thirst for, that we yearn for. Those are the things that we will dream about, that we will chase after, that we will move our schedule around. Those are the things or the set of things that we will be driven to achieve and the things that we will anxiously fret about losing. Those are the gold medals that we work for, we strive for, we sacrifice for, we, we compete for, right? And Jesus wants us to hear the simple warning to beware. Beware the danger. If we seek to satisfy the desires of our hearts with the pursuit of this world, then what we will get is this world as our reward. But that's it. That's the only reward. And that was what he was telling the Pharisees. Uh, my, my grandmother passed away a few, maybe a month ago or so. She was 91 years old, great, great grandma. Um, and so I got to go up and see her before she passed and then travel up for the funeral as well. And the, the weekend of the memorial service, we had a kind of a family gathering the, the night before. And so we got to sit there and tell stories and, you know, reminisce. Um, and we, <laughs> uh, we kind of chuckled over, you know, my grandmother was 91 years old and there were 91 years worth of things that had accumulated in her home. There's a lot of stuff there. Uh, and we, we chuckled over, I don't know if you've seen the, the newspaper cartoon of the, the old man who's standing next to his adult son and they're standing in front of, in the driveway, standing in front of the garage, the garage door is open, and the garage is just packed. I mean, just stuff all the way to the ceiling, wall to wall, things are falling out. And uh, the dad puts his arm, has his arm around his son, and he says, son, one day all of this will be yours. <laughs> this guy's scratching his head. <clears throat> uh, so I got to walk around the house and look at 91 years worth of memories, pictures, uh, hobbies, accomplishments, awards. She loved collecting things. She loved, uh, if, if, if it was a collectible, my grandmother was into it. So m m even if it wasn't a collectible, if it could be collected, she was into it. Uh, so coffee mugs, uh, painted, you know, painted plates. I, I guess that used to be a thing. Um, beanie babies, man, beanie babies. Music boxes, you know, there were lots of things. And they were, my, my grandmother and my grandfather were also uh, artists, loved to paint and do woodworking, so there were all these wonderful things that they had created. And I just remember walking around and being struck by the realization that she's not here anymore. I'm walking around and seeing all of the things that she did, all of the things that she made, all of the events, and all of these things that she left behind, you know? And I thought about what, what a beautiful life she's had, but how tragic it would be if we lived only for things in this life 
that we leave behind. If the sum, aim, and goal of our life is things that we cannot take with us and that eventually get discarded, how tragic would that be? And that's exactly Jesus' point. He says, beware the danger of hungering for the world, of seeking after the world, of setting your heart and your desires on the things of this world. But he doesn't only give us a warning. He also extends a promise, a beautiful promise to those who hunger for God. And we see that here. The promise to enjoy, the invitation rather, to enjoy the delight of hungering for God. He says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I want you to see that there is a God who sees you. He sees you. He sees every smile. He sees every laugh. He sees every moment of joy. He sees every disappointment. He sees every fear. He sees every sleepless night and every gray hair. And for me, those are adding up by the day. He sees you. He sees you. And he knows you. As a father knows their child, he knows you. He knows what you enjoy. He knows what you care about. He knows what's important to you. He knows what you hope for and what you dream for. He knows your regrets, he knows your mistakes. He knows your failures, and he knows what you need. And he cares for you. Like a good father, he wants your best. And we see that truth shine through a thousand ways through his word, and we see it here again. God wants you to experience life. The Beatitudes, at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus outlined the blessed life, that is the the life that your creator designed you for, the life of flourishing. And the witness of the scriptures and of the Christian faith, and I would say of the human experience as well, is that we find that life and that joy and that satisfaction in him and in him alone. St. Augustine opens his spiritual autobiography like this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We hear this in the psalmist. You have made me, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When When I remember you upon my 
bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Every desire of our heart finds its fulfillment in God. He knows you and calls you not as you were, but as you could be. He knows you to the depths of your soul. And he loves you to the heavens. He offers you life and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And we were made to delight in him. God wants you to experience the life of delighting in him. And so we come back to the question of why do we fast? To cultivate a hunger for God. Because it is hunger for God that leads to delight in God. If you want to delight in God, you have to hunger for God. Deuteronomy 8, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It was hunger that led to dependence upon the Lord, and by which the Israelites learned not only the necessity, but the sufficiency of the word of the Lord for what? For life. Man lives by every word. Each spiritual discipline and ordinance is important for the life and the faith of a Christian, but there's something unique about fasting because through it we actively remove some object of our affection or dependence in order to more fully set our heart and our mind on God. And if it's done sincerely, if it's done with this purpose, with this aim, then experiencing physical hunger over some earthly thing because of its removal is the means by which, by God's grace, we increase our spiritual hunger for God and thus grow to delight in him. And so before we close, I want to think through just a few ways that we practically put this uh, into practice in our life. I know this is an area that I want to grow in personally. And, and I hope that you do as well. And so if we're thinking about where do we get started with fasting, where do we even begin? Um, I'll just say a, a few things here briefly. Start with getting a clear answer to why you want to fast. 
Start with getting a clear answer to why. So overall, of course, it's to seek God, to cultivate a hunger for God. But is there a specific area in your life that you wish to grow? Is there an area that you want to see God's Spirit at work? Is there a sin that you are, you're battling with, that you want victory in, a sin that you want to confess and repent of? Is there a, que- a request that you want to take before the Lord for, your, for yourself or for someone else? Perhaps you're seeking wisdom or, or clarity or courage. Perhaps there's someone you're interceding for or something you're grieving. Whatever the why is, I encourage you, write it down. Put it down in a prayer journal, and then as you go through the fast, record what the Lord teaches you specifically about that. And this will foster not only clarity and intentionality, but it will help you to remember. Um, second is determine what you're going to fast. So obviously, obviously we think of food first. It's, it's great. It might be the right option for you. It's a great place to start. Uh, but there are other things, there are plenty of other things in your life that can be fasted and may even be more important for us to fast these days than food. And I, so I challenge you to think about what is the thing that comes to mind when I think about the object of my desire? What am I looking to for the fulfillment of and the satisfaction of this des- these desires, for affirmation, adoration, security? Whatever the answer to those those questions are, that those are prime targets for a fast. And so uh, there's low-hanging fruit here. There's one in most of our pockets, technological devices. Um, maybe consider powering down your device for an entire day, once a month, to give you more space to rest on a Sabbath, but also to create the interior space to focus on God. Social media. Consider turning off your social media for a week. And then every time you get, you know, the, the desire for the dopamine hit, you get that impulse to check your feed, let that be a trigger to respond with a prayer of thanksgiving for an attribute of God or uh, an expression of gratitude for something that the Lord has blessed you with. And think about what that would do to your heart over the course of a week or a month. Every time you're tempted to go and look at what other people are doing, you're stopping to give thanks to God for what he has done for you already. Perhaps there's recreation. Uh, Schedule a week-long fast from any recreation. Instead of hobbies and games, replace them with a time of, you know, a morning prayer walk or an evening Lectio Divina meditation on Scripture. Or travel or leisure. Uh, do, is, this, is that something that you look to too much for comfort? Or you, you find yourself just kind of living for the weekend, the holiday, the vacation, just always looking forward to that? If so, consider committing one of those to a fast and see what the Lord does in your heart around that. Lastly, uh, so get your why, figure out what you're going to fast, and then lastly, set the time. And this can be a day, it can be a week, can be a month or longer, and you can practice it around church season. Of course, Lent is coming up 40 days leading up to Easter. That's going to start in about a week and a half, and that's traditionally a time where Christians around the world 
uh, abstain from something in order to prepare their hearts for the remembrance and celebration of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And so that's a great opportunity that's coming up. But aside from church seasons, consider what a personal rhythm of fasting could look like in your life. You know, maybe there's a certain day of the month you could set aside. First Friday fast, you know, easy to remember for alliteration. Or a, a periodic weekend spiritual retreat where you incorporate a fast. Whatever, you know, works for you. I encourage you to um, consider those options. Finally, Jesus promised a reward. He said, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, Jesus was, he was questioned about why he and his disciples did not fast. The disciples of John, you remember in Matthew, eight, in Matthew 9, came up to him and said, why do your disciples fast? The leaders, the Pharisees fast, the disciples of John fast. Why do your disciples not fast? You remember what he said? He said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. What's his point? They had the bridegroom with him. We fast to align our heart on God, to stoke a hunger for God, to seek after God. The disciples had him. And they had him because he came into this world that we might be with him. And he came to give himself for them and for us, so that we might be with him for all eternity. And so I pray this morning that you feel the gracious invitation of Christ to come and set your heart on a God who knows you, who sees you, who loves you, and who wants to be with you. And may he be glorified through this as we cultivate a hunger for him. Amen.